Hey, if this is uh, your first time, or uh, maybe even if it's not, we are um, on the Bible app. And so notes for today's sermon are on there. Uh, you can find it under the events tab on the Version app. You can download it out of the store. And uh, there's that and announcements and links and all kinds of fun stuff. And uh, so you have permission to, uh, more than permission, you're encouraged, especially if you don't have a Bible with you, to uh, go to the app store, find that. What do they call that on Android? I'm an Apple guy. <clears throat> Sorry. So uh, Google Play, yeah, there it is. It's right there on the screen. I could just cheat and use the screen. That'd be great. Uh, but, but I encourage you to, to do that. While you're doing that, I want to invite uh, each of you to uh, our Christmas Eve uh, gathering. Uh, man, I'm super excited about this. So uh, Governor's Square, and, and uh, we've planted another church on the other side of town, Christ Community Church Midland. We're coming together on Christmas Eve, but we're not doing it here or there. Uh, we want to do it with our community and for our community. And so we're going to be at the Blair Center, uh, which is connected to a part of Southside Elementary, uh, where a lot of all this madness that you're a part of today started. So uh, that's going to be really fun, and, and we are partnering uh, with the Family Resource Youth Service Coordinators to collect coats and hats and gloves. Uh, man, they say when the wintertime comes, that's their greatest need. And so we want to encourage everybody on that night, Christmas Eve, 5 o'clock at the Blair Center, to come uh, bring, bring new coats, hats, gloves, and be a part of that. And um, we're really excited about the opportunity. Katie's going to tell you a little bit more about that later. But uh, today, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 64 as we start talking about Christmas. And today, we're spe specifically going to talk about hope, hope, um, and, and really try to get at the question, what is it about Christmas that makes us desire it so much? Like, why do we like Christmas so much, and why does it give us hope? And so uh, we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 9, and then uh, pray for our our time in the Word. Isaiah writes, If only you would tear the heavens open and come down so the mountains would quake at your presence, just as fire kindles brushwood and fire boils water to make your name known to your enemies so that nations will tremble at your presence. When you did awesome works that we did not expect, you who came down, and the mountains quaked at your presence from ancient times, no one has heard no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. You welcome the one who joyfully does what is right. They remember you in your ways. But we have sinned, and you are angry. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? All of us have become like something unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. No one calls on your name, striving to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us melt because of our iniquity. Yet, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We all are the work of your hands. Lord, don't be terribly angry, or remember our iniquity forever. Please look, all of us, are your people. Let's pray. Father, we pray and we thank you first for your word to us. It's alive, it's active, it, it changes us as we see Jesus in it. And so we ask that uh, 
we would hear from you, from your word today, and that it would change us and shape us and mold us and inspire us to give ourselves fully to your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, like many of you, uh, we, uh, our family celebrated Thanksgiving a couple weeks ago, and uh, this year it was our turn in the rotation to go back to Indiana, where I am from, and spend a, a couple of days there in Indiana. And uh, just being honest, I, and Mom, if you're listening on podcast, forgive me. And when I go home, uh, I'm getting to the point in life where it's almost a little bit weird to go home. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this. Uh, I go, and, and, and it's like different things trigger in my mind. I'll drive past places, and I'll remember things that I did there. Sometimes those things are good, and sometimes those things are not so good. I'll go home, and uh, I'll see rooms or houses or people, and all of those things, they, they trigger different emotions. They trigger old habits, uh, old hangouts old temptations that, if I'm really honest with myself, I don't want to wrestle with anymore. I, I feel like those things are in my past, but when I go home, and, and even though you've got the joy of celebrating and being with family, like those things are just like lingering in the background. It's no fun to run into our old selves, right? We run into our old selves in, in lots of different ways, especially uh, in these holiday season of Thanksgiving and Christmas. Maybe it's going home that does that for you. Uh, maybe it's just being around certain people that remind you of other people. Maybe it's the absence of people that used to be there. But none of us like running into our old selves, whatever it is that might trigger that. And because sometimes when we run into our old selves, our old self runs over our hope. Have you ever noticed that? When you run into the old you, when you think about what you used to be or or the things that you don't really want to be a part of your life anymore, they, they almost squash your hope. It's like, man, I could never be what I think I want to be. I could never achieve the things that God has for me because of the old me. Why is that? Why is it that our old selves run over our hope? Today's passage is a prayer of the Israelite people. And the people of Israel as they're praying this, they, they had ran into their old selves. And when they did that, it caused them to realize that they were really far from the, God, the plan that God had for them. In this moment, they're exiled away from their homeland. And what they're admitting before God is that they're, they're exiled away from Him. Listen to their, their view of themselves in the last couple verses of Isaiah 63 before this passage comes. They are confessing to God, your holy people had a possession for a little while. But our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those you never ruled, like those who did not bear your name. Right? It's like they realize, they know, like, man, this is what things used to be, and it's triggering some stuff because we realize that, that life is not what it's supposed to be. They had run into their old selves, and their old self had ran them over, leaving them hopeless. You know, when, when sin and the effects of sin run rampant in us, in our lives, and, and around us, in our world, we become really desperate for good things, something good. In the midst of our hopelessness, we yearn and we long and we desire. We are just desperate for something good to happen. We're desperate for hope. Just 
give me a little bit of hope. And I think many of us find ourselves there as we near the end of the year. It's been a long year. It's been a quick year, but long. We think too much of what we haven't been, the things that we haven't accomplished. We think of hard moments or, or moments of loss in our families. We see the pain that our world experienced this year. And when we think about those things as the year comes to a close, we just long for something good. And so the people of Israel, and I, and I pray us today, return to the one that they trust will bring hope to their hopeless situations. And yet still, right, like you can't just say I'm returning and then everything is okay. And so they're wrestling in this desperation. And what the people of Israel didn't know is that they were going to wrestle in this desperation for a long, long time. This passage was written hundreds of years before Christ would, would rip open the heavens and, and come down as we read that first Christmas. In fact, they wouldn't even see it in their lifetime. But we can learn so much about their struggle for hope and what it looks like to put our hope in Christ. You know, the first thing that I see as we open this passage is that, is that these people, they wanted God to make an entrance. They wanted him to make an entrance. If only you would tear the heavens open and come down. This wasn't like a, a, you know, a small request like, hey, God, if you could come and like really help us out in this situation, that would be great, right? No, you read those first few verses like, tear open the heavens, earthquakes, fire. Like, God, we want you to come and make your presence known. Doesn't that become our yearning at Christmas? In fact, maybe you're here today for the very same reason. You want, maybe you need, maybe you're desperate for God to make an entrance in your life. God, come on. Like, come do something, Father. You know, there's a lot of things that push us to this point. Maybe our marriage is breaking down. Maybe our finances never seem to add up, and if they do, then an unexpected bill comes, and it just seems hopeless. Maybe we can't make sense of, of who we are or what God wants for us in this world. Maybe we're overwhelmed by the expectations of school or, or at our job. We're overwhelmed by the expectations of our kids' Christmas list. I don't know what it is, but when we get there, to those moments of hopelessness and desperation, we often have the same realization that the Jewish people did. We realize that our good deeds are more than worthless. Verse 6, they say, all of us have become like something unclean, and all of our acts are like a polluted garment. Bible teachers everywhere appreciate the strength of the, of the imagery here, all right? Isaiah is comparing the good things that, that you and I do to a polluted garment. Now, in context, back in the day, in their language, a polluted garment is a garment that has been polluted by the blood of a woman's menstrual cycle. This is a strong statement. The good things that we do are more than worthless. In the grand scheme of things, the good things that we do are about as valuable as our bathroom trash. And we don't, we, we don't like to, to think about that, right? You mean all the good things that we did on Love Shelbyville Day this year, or all the good things that we did in our life, the things that we did that nobody was watching, 
The things that we did to try and make ourselves feel better about our lives, the, the things that we did out of gratitude, all of the good things that we do are more than worthless. Isaiah compares them to a polluted garment. I'm not sure that would go well if I started calling them that in our household. But none of us like this, right? But deep down, we know that it's true. That none of our good acts are deeply and continually satisfying. They may be good, but they don't make us good, right? And that's tough to wrestle with. I can do good things, but that doesn't make me a good person. At Christmas time, philanthropy ramps up. We give more, we volunteer to ring the bell, we help families in need, and those are really good things, but they don't make us good. They don't make you and I good. They even make us feel good, but feelings don't last. Good things don't give us hope. So in our desperation for hope, we, we do good things, but then we find out that those good things, even they are worthless, and many of us are tempted to give up. And, and we see the last piece of the struggle for hope in, in the Israelites' prayer in verse 7. Verse 7, they say, No one calls on your name, striving to take hold of you. And they realize their error, right? That they're desperate for hope, but they're not determined to take hold of God. How many of us, when our good acts aren't enough, give up on God instead of grasping to take a tighter hold on Him? I can't tell you the number of people that I've talked to, and they're, they're desperate, they're hopeless, and they say, I just don't understand. I did all of these good things. I've tried to go to church more. I've tried to give. I've tried to serve better. I've tried to do the right thing. And, and those are, those are noble, and they're good, but those good things don't make us good. Good things don't give us hope. In our desperation, we often aren't determined to take hold of God. Instead, we'd rather cling to our good things. And we give up too easily. Because after all, God should do it our way, on our time. Amen? That was facetious. Don't amen that. Instead, I think we should be grateful that God answers our prayer according to his will and not ours. TJ said it so well. We were praying for one thing, and God answered something else. The Israelites wanted, desperately wanted, the hope of God to return to their lives. And while they shared that struggle with God, they also recognized that God was in charge. And their prayer here in Isaiah 64 teaches us that Christ came with hope not in a hurry. Christ came with hope, not in a hurry. You see, they're asking, God, break open the heavens. And God came all right. But it wasn't in a, a rock slide or a fire or an earthquake. He didn't come and immediately right all the wrongs. The world was broken and Jesus came and snapped his fingers and said, boom, it's all good now. He didn't do that. He came instead as a tiny, helpless baby boy that couldn't talk, couldn't walk, in his human nature, had no ability to affect change. But that baby boy was a beacon of hope for the Jewish people. That cradle on that morning was filled with hope for the Jews. And then his death on the cross opened heaven to all of mankind, Jews and Gentiles alike. The cradle gave hope. The cross extended that hope. 
And now we look forward to Christ's return as king. Wearing a crown that fulfills our hope of a world made right. A world that will be ruled justly and righteously by Christ alone. The cradle, the cross, and the crown. The cradle filled with hope, the cross extending hope, and the crown fulfilling our hope. Christ came with hope. It just wasn't in a hurry. I want us to think about the implications of that in our lives. And to do that, we can think about this verse in Isaiah 64, 8, when Isaiah writes, Yet, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We all are the work of your hands. This image of the, the potter and the clay has a few implications for us to consider. Number one is that it takes time for the potter to transform the clay. It takes time. Any potters in here? I need to make sure before I give some of these illustrations, so if I'm wrong, I'm not getting caught. Sailor is a potter. Of course, sailor. I can always count on sailor. Sailor is a potter. Okay, good. He's the only one, so, you know, it's, I'm, I'm comfortable now. Either that or somebody's lying and not, you know, they're not brave enough to raise their hand. It takes time. It's a minimum of three and a half weeks to transform a lump of clay into a finished pot. Okay? Let me ask you a question. Didn't you come to church this morning for God to change your life today? I mean, I didn't come to church just to come to church. I came that Christ would change my life today. And he can. <laughs> I don't want to limit the Father. But the complete transformation of each of us from lost sinner to heavenly saint is a process that only God can comprehend the time frame for. We do know that it is only complete when Christ returns as king. But so often our expectation, our hope in Christ is dependent upon how much we're changed today. Doesn't it give you great hope, though, that, that someone far greater than you is overseeing the transformation of your life? That the creator of the universe is, is working you and shaping you over a period of time and days and years into exactly who he has designed you to be. That gives me great hope. It takes time for the potter to transform the clay. We can also see that no matter the shape of the pot, the clay is always the work of the potter. It's always the work of the potter. No one can take that away from you and I, that we are his work. My parents, uh, they are empty nesters now, and um, that's a little bit annoying, if I'm just being really honest. Uh, I don't know why it's so, but they've made a, a really interesting habit of getting to Gatlinburg. Uh, I, somehow the, the trip became shorter without kids. I'm not sure how that happens, but it's really easy for them to get there now. And um, down there, they found this little shop that they love, uh, where a potter makes all kind of useful pottery. And um, we're the beneficiary of some really cool pots. Um, in particular, we have two that we use quite often. And one of them is, I just call it a sauce bowl. It's like this little bowl about this big, and it's got this cool pouring spout on it. And it's awesome, like, if you're making, like, I like to, like, make my own barbecue sauce with mixtures of different things. So, you know, you can mix different things in there or whatever. Like, so it's a little, little mixing sauce bowl. But then the other one. The other one's pretty awesome. It is a bacon maker. This thing is so cool. It's like this little pot, 
and you stream your bacon over it, and it's got like little holes in the bottom, so the bacon grease comes down. And then you can even like it's got a handle, and you can pour the bacon grease out. So it's amazing. It is so cool. And um, I'm not saying I value one over the other. Maybe I do, but I mean, who doesn't love bacon more than sauce? I, <laughs> but the 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 point is this, right? No matter what shape the lump of clay took, it was made by the same potter. And that potter had a specific purpose in mind for both of those things. And they both served their purpose really well. So you and I, we get so caught up in being liked by people that we forget that we were created with a purpose by the potter. Sometimes we would rather be the pot that our friends want us to be than the pot that God made us to be. You may be a tall, slender pot. You may be a short, slender pot. You may be a pot that can take on a lot of water. You may be a pot designed to make bacon. If so, I like you. You may be a pot designed to mix sauces or, or to mix people together really well and then really bring people together. You may be a pot that is designed to brighten up a room, to really decorate it and make it nice. You may be a pot that's broken into a thousand pieces and now forms an incredible mosaic picture of God's work in rebuilding you. No matter its shape, the clay is always the work of the potter. Do you see the hope in that? That no matter what happens, no matter how you're formed, and no matter what is going on in your life, the God who created you has a purpose and a plan for what is going on in your life, and he is using it to reflect his glory. We may not know what tomorrow holds, but when we are in Christ, we know that we are in the hands of the creator God. We are his work and he is not in a hurry. He is molding us and shaping us and adding water to us and squeezing us in just the right ways to form us into the exact shape that we need to be in to best play our role in his plan. And that drops us off at the principle that we can take with us, that we can join him in that work. The clay should remain soft so that the potter can do his best work. You and I must keep ourselves in a position before the Father in which we are teachable, we want to learn how to be his son or his daughter. We, we know that he is changing us, but, but we want to put ourselves in a position where we're able to listen and tune in and find out how we best play our role. It takes time, because if a potter tried to form his pot and paint it in the same day, it's not going to work. Christ came with hope. He wasn't in a hurry. It's hard to be patient when you're the clay. So many of us would rather rush to a solution. And when we do, we end up not only hopeless, but incredibly exhausted. I've never seen this uh, flesh out before my eyes like I saw it one year at a student camp that we were leading in Lexington. <clears throat> we were talking uh, that week about uprooting sin out of our lives. What does it look like to do that? And so we'd gotten together with the the camp uh, staff, and they had this big stump very near to the worship center. A tree had fallen. They'd cut it down. The stump was there. And we were like, hey, would it be possible for us to try and dig that out while we're here this week? And they're like, sure, but that ain't going to happen. And we're like, even better. And so we've got a bunch of energetic, rampaging teenagers, and we take them up around this stump the first day, and we're like, hey, you guys have a goal this week. 
we're talking about uprooting sin, trying to get sin out of our lives. And you see this big stump? It's representative of your sin. And so by the end of the week, we want you guys to get this stump out of the ground. Well, if you've ever seen teenage guys flex in front of a bunch of teenage girls that they're about to spend the week with, this was the time. This was the time. And they were all excited. I mean, axes, shovels. There were guys up there all the time looking at this thing. And about Wednesday, they realized this thing wasn't coming out of the ground, and it became way less popular. Well, Thursday night, we're having worship, and we're, we're trying to bring all this home. And I'm standing in the back as the speaker's speaking, and I watch this young man rush out the back, and he's emotional. I'm thinking, that can't be good. So I follow him out the door, and he's got this axe. And he goes to the stump, and I mean, he is just going at it, tears streaming down his face. He's sweating. I'm a little afraid to even get close because I'm not sure how much of a grip he's got on this axe. And I'm trying to calm him down. I was like, man, what are you, like, tell me what's going on. What are you doing? He's like, I know there's sin in my life. And I don't want it there. And I'm going to do everything I can as representation of that to try and get this stump out of the ground. And you can't stop me. tried to calm him down. I said, listen, man, the whole goal of this, this whole exercise is for you to see that you can't uproot the sin out of your life. Only Christ can. He is your hope, but he's not in a hurry. He's transforming you day by day, moment by moment, as you join him in that process. Today, if we believe the gospel truth that Christ came with hope for us and that he's not in a hurry to change our lives, then you will wait for God with hope instead of expecting God to hurry up and fix things in your life. Isaiah writes this in verse 4. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. Ain't nobody got time for that. Jesus, I came for you to change me today. I need a new life today. But God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. I remember in school, I hated getting called out by the teachers who would say, Blake, I'll keep going whenever you're finished. (laughs) Happened a lot. How many of us can resonate with that in our spiritual lives. We're talking to everyone. We're talking about all the right things. We're trying to make something happen, and the teacher is waiting up front. God the Father saying, Blake, fill in your name. I'll keep going whenever you're finished. In much the same way, God is always ready to teach us, to correct us, to give us hope, to change our lives, if we will only take time to wait for him, to listen to what he has to say, and to remove things from our lives that keep us from hearing him. How do we wait? What, what do we do while we wait? 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, that's the goal, right? The goal is to join him as he comes back as the king, to be made right in and through him. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. 
You see, if you're expecting God to come into your life and to continue to change you and to mold you, the best thing you can do while waiting on the Lord is confess your sin. Our greatest expression of hope is confessing our inability to do the right thing. It shows that we trust God more than we trust ourselves. It shows that we believe in the forgiveness that came through Jesus' death on the cross. You see, it's our sin that makes us desperate. It withers us to nothing like a leaf in the fall. It causes us to be blown away. It separates us from God. His face turns from our sin. And when we confess to him and give voice to our helplessness, hope swoops in. Hope swoops in. Because in that moment, we realize that Christ has come with hope, not in a hurry. We are his clay. He has a plan for us. It takes time for the transformation. We have to keep ourselves moldable, and we do that by keeping our lives free from sin. So how do we confess our sin in a healthy way? This is a story on what not to do by Blake Lawyer. I remember my senior year of high school, I knew the Lord was calling me into ministry. And for the first time that I remember, I was attempting to disciple someone. And, and that's, a, that's a biblical word for walking with someone from the point of being lost to saved to being equipped to going out into the brokenness of our world to save others. And the young man that I was walking with, I'll, I'll call him Brandon. He started coming to youth group with me. And then he and I would chat on MSN after youth group dating myself a little bit. Any, anybody else chatting on MSN? Okay. Just me. Dial-up internet. It's great. So we'd get on our dial-up internet, we'd get in the chat, and we'd talk through questions about Jesus, or we'd talk about the lesson that night at, at youth group. And basically, I just tried to be there for him as he pursued God. So one week, I remember being especially convicted myself at youth group, because that week, I had looked at some inappropriate images on the internet. And I was convicted by that. I knew that there was sin in my life. I knew that it wasn't good. And so later that night, I'm, I'm chatting with Brandon, like usual, and I thought it was a good idea to confess that to him and ask for his accountability. I poured my heart out, the best a teenage guy could, over a chat message. No response. And no eye contact the next day at school either. Needless to say, our relationship pretty much ended right there. It's a little bit awkward. Why did that go wrong? And as I've walked with the Lord and sought him out, I've learned that when I did that, I hadn't repented and returned to God. Because you see, though I was convicted, I wasn't convinced that I wanted to give that to the Lord. I was still ashamed of the sin of my life. I was going to do everything I could to dig up that stump. See, there's a big difference. I wanted to get the guilt of the sin off of my chest, but I didn't really want to take it to the Lord. Surely if I just told someone else, I'd feel better, right? Like, that's, that's what I'm thinking, and that's wrong. You see, if we take our sins to others, they may offer us what grace they can, but they can't offer us true hope and forgiveness. Only God can do that. Proverbs 28, 13 gives us this wisdom in the Bible. It says, The one who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. 
I wanted someone to tell me that it was okay instead of someone telling me to keep my life free from sin. So what can we learn about my mistakes in confessing sin that I think help us? First thing is that we must confess to God first. We must return to him. We must take the things that only he can forgive to him first. For me, in my life, journaling has proven to be the most effective way for me to return to God. I don't do it often, but when I'm overwhelmed by the weight of sin, I get a blank sheet of paper and I just write until I feel like I don't have anything else to say to God about that sin. And I leave it there with him. Now, all this is not to say that it's not important to confess to others. James 5.16 reminds us, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. But confessing to others must come out of relationship. And, And if there's one reason why I will always believe in the power of community groups, it's this. That we might begin to build relationships, spiritual relationships, that are built on trust in the Father and trust in each other. They give us a place to find relationships inside of that, not necessarily in the large group, but maybe even one person inside of that group that allow for healthy confession to take place so that healing may come. Church, hope comes as Christ heals us. We want healing in a hurry, but Jesus wants hope that will heal. What's amazing is that hope doesn't just heal you. It is the very thing that holds us all together. You see, the hope of Christ coming that first Christmas is what kept the Israelites looking for the promised Messiah. It held them together despite all the brokenness in their lives and the world, despite the fact that they weren't even in their home city, that they didn't have their homes, they didn't know how the Messiah was going to come. The hope of the Messiah held them together, and it can do the same for us. And once Christ came, he began healing people, one person at a time, as he looked forward to the day that all those who believed in him would join him in heaven as he puts on his rightful crown as the King Jesus. He so looks forward to that day that Christ is there now, preparing that place for each of us who would place our faith in him. So we who are believers, we have that hope that heals us but it also holds us together as we look forward to the city that is to come in heaven. But even more than that, it holds us together even now here at Christ Community Church. Do you have that hope today? Do you have the kind of hope that points us forward, that holds us together, and that heals us one day at a time? Because you see, marriages work not because we're good at it, but because the hope of Christ holds them together. Friendships last not because of what you have in common now, but because of your shared hope for the future. And our relationship with God is not built on what he can offer us right now. It's the hope of what we will one day share together with him in heaven. That is what calls us to him each day. That is what gives us hope. Today the band is going to come back up and remind us that Christ did come down. He came down with hope. He's not in a hurry to change your life overnight, but he is hoping to heal you. If you have Christ in your life, 
we invite you to be reminded of the brokenness that led to that hope when Christ died on the cross. And we do that by taking part in the Lord's Supper. All those who have been baptized into Christ can come forward and take a piece of the bread that represents Christ's body. And you dip it in the blood that represents, uh, not blood, the juice that represents blood. Fatal mistake there. You dip it in the juice that represents Christ's blood that was shed for you. And you remember that his brokenness leads to your healing and your hope. But maybe today, you've been trying really hard. You've been doing a lot of really good things to try and find hope. But you've never placed your trust in Christ, the one who can give you hope. If that's you, I invite you to, to just seek him. Maybe right where you are, you're saying a prayer, saying, Father, I want to trust you with my whole heart. I give my life to you. I or one of the other pastor elders would love to walk through that conversation with God with you. We'd love to just pray with you as you do that. We'll be in the back during this time of response. Christ wants to give you hope. Don't leave here today without it. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we could never imagine, understand the cost of the hope that you have given to us. You left your place in heaven. You did exactly as we read in Isaiah 64, and you, you tore the heavens open. And you came down. And you began to change the world. And so, Father, I pray that today our hope would be found in you. Father, for those who are here, maybe they're seeking hope. Father, I pray that you would speak to them through your word, through a person speaking your word, through the word uh, sung through song. I pray, God, that you would not only convict them, but you would convince them that you are their only hope. And Father, we pray that you would restore our hope that you would remind us of who you're making us to be. Images of you reflecting your hope in this world. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, who gives us our hope.